And if you return uh, with me in your Bibles to Amos uh, chapter 4. Amos chapter 4. Uh, in the church Bibles, that's page 919. And I'm going to read uh, for us the, the whole of this uh, chapter, Amos chapter 4. Amos 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through the breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering, and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none, and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you, as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps. Yet you have not returned to me declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you. As I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, you were like a burned stick snatched from the fire. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains who creates the wind and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. This is God's word. And I've called uh, this sermon, Yet You Have Not Returned to Me, which I hope you see is a repeated uh, refrain uh, in Amos chapter 4. Now, last week we saw how God can discipline and punish his people by making them powerless. And I made mention last week of Samson as an example of this. When Samson was stripped of his own strength, he was left with no other option 
but to call on God to help him. And as Samson, in a state of blindness and helplessness, cried out to God to give him strength, God enabled him to save Israel from the Philistines. The humbling of Samson resulted in Samson returning to God. And in this passage in Amos, we see one of the purposes of suffering in our lives. It is a call to return to God. Now, it's not the only reason for suffering. And we don't only suffer when we sin or because of our sin. However, one of the ways that God uh, uses to draw people to himself is suffering. And in Amos 4, Israel again and again suffers in order that they might return to the Lord. Uh, In his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis points out this concept. He says this, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And Israel in this chapter is being shouted at by God's megaphone, but the tragedy of Israel is that they just don't listen to God's call to them. And there are three parts to this chapter. We see the the pride of the people, which is at the heart of their rebellion against God. We see, secondly, the pain of the people, which is God's call to return to himself. And then finally, we're going to see the need of the people to prepare to meet the God that they're not listening to. So first of all, we see pride, the heart of rebellion. Notice in verse 1, we see words that are the same as the beginning of chapter 3. Hear this word. So we're going to hear God speak. And he's telling them, you need to listen to this. This is important. Hear this word. But the word is to, at the beginning, an interesting group of people. He says, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. And he calls these women cows of Bashan. Now, if we were to call a woman a cow of Bashan, we would probably and rightly uh, get some kind of uh, punch in the nose, right? Although this is an insult, though, it's not quite used in the same way as we might use or probably shouldn't use, uh, the phrase. Because Bashan was a place known for the cattle being uh, plump and healthy because of the luxurious pasture land on which they grazed. And they are referred to in other places in the Bible as well for that reason. The point is not that the women are plump, but rather they are rich They are powerful, and they are living in luxury and ease. But notice how the women are using their power. 
They lord it over both their social inferiors and their husbands. So notice how they oppress the poor and crush the needy. So there is a selfishness and a cruelty towards those that they are in a position to help. This kind of treatment of the poor and needy we're going to see again and again in the book of Amos. It's a common theme. We will come back to it in weeks to come. God expects those who are rich to help those who are in need. And these rich women were not doing that at all. So they have a prideful contempt of those below them on the social ladder, if you like. But they also have an inappropriate attitude towards their husbands. The husbands who they were supposed to be led by. In fact, the Hebrew word here for husbands is a similar word to Lord. Meaning the husband was supposed to lead his wife. But the wives here are lording it over their husbands. They are demanding of them, bring me a drink. Now there's nothing wrong, of course, with a husband bringing his wife a drink. In fact, I would strongly encourage husbands to bring their wife a drink when they ask for one. The problem here is is, is not that. The problem is the demanding wife. The wife who is calling on her husband to be on her beck and call all of the time trying to use him to get what she wants all of the time. But there's another aspect to this too, that the call for drinks seems to be linked to the oppression. And so what seems to be happening is that the wives are making demands of their husbands to provide them with the luxurious life. And to do that, the husbands have to treat others who are poor and needy with oppression. And so the wife, who is called to be the helper of the husband, is helping them to do evil rather than helping them to be the kind of man God calls them to be. What a sad place for these women to be in. But isn't it very common in our society today? Hasn't many women's ideas, and men's for that matter, of feminism being not to rightly provide women with the rights they deserve, but rather to do men down, and rather than equalize society, try and overturn it so that the women become the oppressors lording it over the men. Now, men shouldn't be lording it over the women either, but in our world, that doesn't seem to be the problem. And how many wives are overbearing and demanding, making a husband's life miserable by using him purely to get what she wants. A Christian wife is called to help her husband be the man God has called him to be. We get that wonderful picture in Ephesians 5 of the the loving husband, loving his wife as Christ loves the church, and the wife helping him to be that man. None of them, in fact, are to be lording it over the other, you see. But it won't end well for these proud women. Notice in verse 2, God takes it very seriously. So seriously, in fact, that he swears by his own holiness. The holiness of God speaks of his very nature. He's swearing by himself. Now, when God makes an oath, it's not because he lacks integrity or because 
he might not do it, so he's got to swear. It's rather giving a note of assurance. He's saying, as certain as I am holy, this will come to pass. In other words, it's absolutely certain to happen. And what is coming is that these proud women, who are lording it over their husbands and over everybody below them, will be humiliated. They will be taken away with hooks, we read. Uh, That speaks of the way that people in these days were taken off into exile with hooks put through their nose. In fact, you can see depictions of it on on stone images uh, from the Assyrian period of how people would be led away into captivity when they were defeated in battle. So these proud women are going to be caught like fish and led away out of a city which in verse 3 has its walls broken down. They'll be totally humiliated. And that's exactly, by the way, what happened when years later the Assyrians came and took the people of Israel away. So if in verses 1 and 2 there was a a women problem, in verses 4 and 5 there is a worship problem. That was also down to pride. In these verses, Amos is being sarcastic about the worship of the people of Israel. First of all, they are called to go to the wrong place. Uh, Bethel and Gilgal are cult sites that were set up in place of the one place of worship God had set up in Jerusalem. And they are called to go there and sin. Now remember, this is sarcasm. God is not commanding them to sin. He's mocking them. He's saying, basically, when you go there, you are sinning. So he says, well, go there and sin then. So they worship in the wrong place. Secondly, they worship in the wrong way. They are bringing sacrifices here, but not according to God's word. In fact, they are going over and above what God says for them to do. So at the end of verse 4, they bring sacrifices every morning and tithes every three days. In the NIV, the the end of verse 4 has three years, but almost every other translation has three days. It doesn't matter too much. The point is they're bringing it more than they were supposed to. They didn't need to bring sacrifices that often. It was above and beyond. In verse 5, they bring thank offerings and free will offerings. Even the burning of leavened bread was not forbidden. But the key to understanding the wrong way of worship is to notice here what is missing. What's missing? There is no sacrifice for sin at all. No sacrifice for sin. They're going above and beyond in everything else but there's no sacrifice for sin. And the reason they're going above and beyond is because they worship with the wrong motive. Notice uh, at the, in verse 5 how they brag about the offerings and they boast about them because this is what you love to do. They were going above and beyond because they were saying, Look at how much I'm bringing to God. Look at the size of my sacrifice. Aren't I wonderful? What a holy person I am. That kind of thing. They wanted to be seen by others to be righteous. 
And if you know your Bibles at all, that will ring familiar because it's exactly what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you would have no reward from your Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't don't just worship in order to get people to give you a round of applause. Don't do that. That isn't worship. And can't our worship be this way? It becomes about how many acts we've done, how much time we have spent. We can do things just to get the approval from others, and we can even think we've got God's approval because we've done him some kind of favor by sacrificing for him. Worship in Amos here is performance-based, not based on a personal relationship with God. And so can ours be. And if you have this kind of tendency to do things just to be seen by others, let me encourage you, do some service in secret. Give a gift anonymously. Fix something quietly. Pray fervently and so on. Because pride is at the heart of human rebellion. The sin of Israel that resulted in the oppression of the poor stemmed from a heart that wanted to serve itself rather than serve God. And that showed itself in the worship that God was given by them. And it's tragic because not only does the Lord deserve our worship, the worship of God is what he rescued Israel from Egypt for. We are made to worship God. And so when we walk away from worship of God, we are walking a path to destruction. And if worship of God is what we're made for, and walking away from God is the worst place we can be, then God is very merciful when he calls us to return. And that's the second part of the passage. The call to return to God results in him having to resort to pain. In verses 6 to 11, Amos outlines a series of disasters that have struck Israel over the years. Amos reveals the main point of these disasters in the repeated refrain, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Notice you'll see that phrase five times in verses 6 to 11. It's the, the key phrase to understanding this passage. God brought the disasters on the people to call them to return. Now, God had said to his people, Israel, that he would do this when they wandered from him. So in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 30, we read this. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. So in that chapter in Deuteronomy, God's saying, look, I'm going to bring distress on you so that you will return. This is what God said he would do to Israel, and we see it played out in Amos. So let's look at these disasters briefly and, and what, they, what, they, what happened. First of all, in verse 6, we see the disaster of famine. Uh, in fact, the phrase we see there, empty stomachs, is literally translated, I gave you cleanness of teeth. 
meaning their teeth were clean because they had no food to make them dirty. In fact, in olden days, I think in the Tudor times, people would use sugar to make their teeth rot so that they looked rich because clean teeth was a sign of not having enough to eat. That was what, kind of the meaning here. So we see famine. In verses 7 and 8, we see drought. So their rain is withheld, but sent to one, one town and withheld from another. And this seemingly indiscriminate rainfall was to show that it was God who was sending it. When they were looking around and thinking, well, why is it raining there and not here? The point is, it's unusual because it's God that's sending the rain. It's a bit like in Exodus, uh, when the Egyptians had some of the plagues, the little place where Israel was, was spared. Because it was a sign that it was God that was doing this. In verse uh, 9, we see economic disaster because in an agrarian society, a crop failure meant no income and then hunger. And so the gardens and vineyards are struck there with blight and mildew. Uh, Blight is a a hot, dry wind uh, that withers the plants and mildew is a disease that causes the crops to fail. And locusts, would come in huge swarms and consume everything in their path, devastating a whole area. In this case, the fig and the olive tree businesses were ruined. In the first part of verse 10, we see plague. So he's treating Israel like he treated Egypt. Uh, The point there is not that they had the 10 plagues of Egypt, but that they were treated like Egypt was treated. They suffered. At the uh, second part of verse 10, we see war. Uh, The war killed the young men, which was a disaster for the future of the country. Horses were captured, and the death was so bad that the camp stank of death. It was almost saying there wasn't enough time to bury all the bodies before they started to rot. It's a a horrible image of, of what can happen in warfare. And then finally, in verse 11... There is a large-scale destruction. Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 were completely destroyed. And in fact, Sodom and Gomorrah were used as a proverbial benchmark on how sinful a society can be. In other words, Israel was so bad, God treated them like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. But even in the midst of this fiery trial, like Sodom and Gomorrah, where fire was sent from heaven, God saved some. Notice the phrase in the middle of verse 11. Look there with me. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire. Now those who were snatched out didn't deserve it. This was God's mercy. And you can imagine, can't you, if you were in a fire and you are snatched out of the fire, you'd be very grateful to still be alive. And they should have been grateful. But they did not recognize this as God's mercy, and they did not turn to him. Even those that were left from this large-scale destruction did not turn back to God. So those are the, the disasters God brought on Israel. Two important truths to note in all of these disasters. First, all of them were sent by God. 
all of the time we read God say, I. So, I gave you empty stomachs. I also withheld rain. I struck your gardens and vineyards. I sent plagues. I killed your young men. I filled your nostrils. I overthrew some of you. You see, it was God that sent these disasters on Israel. They weren't accidents. That's the first point to note. Secondly, notice the purpose. It was that Israel might return to God. So he says, I did this, yet you did not return to me. I did this, yet you did not return to me. Not all suffering is because of sin or because of specific sin. All suffering is because of sin generally, but not all suffering is because of specific sin in our lives. In fact, we should be very, very careful to, to pronounce the reason for a disaster as being a specific sin. We don't know the purposes of God. We don't know the mind of God. But all suffering should cause us to turn to God. And in doing this, good does come in that sense, or can come, from any disaster. At the moment, we see in our world war, don't we? Is, that, is it a good thing? Of course not. Of course it's not a good thing. But is a war a call on a people suffering in that war to turn to God? Yes. God does use war in that way. And haven't we, or well, I certainly have, heard stories in Ukraine of people coming to faith in Jesus because of the suffering? It doesn't make the suffering good. It doesn't make what happened, what's happening right. But it is a call for people to turn to God, isn't it? Similarly with COVID. Was it a good thing that we were shut down? Of course not. Was it a call to turn to God? Absolutely. What about on a, a smaller scale? What about our individual lives? What about the suffering we go through individually? All of us suffer, don't we? Perhaps some of us are suffering right now. Suffering can cause us to turn away from God. But one of the purposes always is that we would turn to him. How often have we heard stories of people deepening their relationship with God because of their suffering? How often have we heard testimony of people putting their trust in Jesus Christ because of a suffering that happened in their lives? So don't necessarily take suffering as a divine punishment. It's not always because of our sin. Sometimes there isn't a reason we will ever know. But whatever suffering does occur, it is always an opportunity to turn to God. And it is a good thing to turn to God. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, we are made to worship him. If we're made to worship him and he's turning us through suffering to be what we were made to be, that is a good thing. 
But an important point in Amos chapter 4 that we're about to move on to is that there is a bigger disaster coming of which any suffering in this life is but a small sample in comparison. That's the point of verses 12 to 13. We need to prepare because there is a time for retribution. Once we get to verse 12, we have seen Israel over and over and over again not listen to God's call to return. I mean, it's not just God calling on them once. He has called them over and over and over again. But they have not returned. They have not listened. And so, in verse 12, we see the words, therefore. Or because you have not listened. This is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. Interestingly, we're not told here what this is that God will do. Come next week, and we will see it in Amos 5. But what we are told is that God is coming to judge, and that whatever the judgment is, whatever this is, it is going to be worse than the disasters that have come previously. Worse even than what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Any suffering in this life is but a sample of what one has to suffer if they have to suffer the wrath of God for their sins because they have not returned to God. The New Testament teaches us clearly that those who do not repent of sin and turn to God will face God's wrath in hell forever. Any suffering this side of heaven in comparison to that, is but a small sample of what is to come. And so you can see, I hope, the need to return to God now. It is of utmost importance, isn't it? It is vital that we prepare to meet our God. The phrase prepare to meet your God, is one that is often associated with billboards around the necks of crackpot Christians who think the end of the world is nigh. But the phrase prepare to meet your God is one to contemplate and take very seriously indeed. In the context here, the preparation is to brace yourselves to face the retribution of God for your sins and for your ignorance of him when he has called on you again and again and again, return to me. He shouted through the suffering, come to me, come to me. And again and again, they've not returned to their God. And so he says, prepare to meet me. Now, the word prepare in the, in the Bible seems to be used in, in two main ways. One way is to prepare for a battle. So in Ezekiel 38, we see the phrase here, get ready, be prepared, you and all the hordes gathered about you, and take command of them. After many days, you'll be called to arms. What we see here is a call to prepare for a fight. 
So if you prepare to meet your God in that way, you're preparing to fight him. We'll see in a moment how that will go, but the preparation is to fight. But in Exodus chapter 19, the same word is used there when the Israelites are at Mount Sinai and God is going to come to give them the law. There we read these words to Moses. Have them, or the people, wash their clothes and prepare by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to them, prepare yourselves for the third day. Here, the preparation is cleansing from sin in in preparation to meet the God who's coming. So they could face him and not be destroyed. So effectively, verse 12 says that God is going to come in judgment. You've not listened to him thus far. Something worse is coming. He's coming in judgment. Get ready. Prepare to meet your God. And you can do that in two ways. You can can get ready to fight God, or you can be cleansed from your sin. And if you're wondering which of those two is the best option, look at verse 13, and you'll see the God who you're going to meet. Verse 13. He who forms the mountains who creates the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. The God who you need to prepare to meet is the God who creates, forming mountains and creating wind. No one else can do these things. Do you want to fight against this God? The God who you need to prepare to meet is the God who reveals, sharing his thoughts and turning the lights on in people's minds. He's the all-knowing God. The God who you need to prepare to meet is the God who is above all, treading the heights of the earth. They're not coming face to face with some little God of some little territory somewhere in the Middle East. They're coming face to face with the Lord God Almighty. The phrase Lord Almighty, by the way, is the way the NIV translates the name of God, Lord of hosts or Lord of armies. So if you're going to fight, you're going to fight against the Lord who is the Lord of all the heavenly hosts. He is the Lord over all. So what we see here is that if you, if you choose to prepare to meet your God by preparing to fight him, you can prepare to lose and to suffer his judgment because there is no fight. You are not God. He is the Lord Almighty. You will lose. And you will suffer the wrath of God if you do not turn to him. You can't prepare to meet your God by preparing to fight. And so if fighting is futile, what is left? We need to be cleansed of our sin. We need to be cleansed of the sin that is the rebellion against him. That's what Israel did not do. Their worship contained no sin sacrifices 
Their suffering did not cause them to turn to God. They rebelled. What about you? Paul writes in Romans 14 that every one of us, everyone will stand before God's judgment seat. Each one of us is going to one day stand before God. You will meet him. Be of no doubt. Prepare to meet your God. And so I must answer the question, how can we be cleansed from our sin? We are cleansed from our sin by the blood of Jesus, the one who made the sacrifice for sin for us. Rather than showing pride, Jesus showed humility as he left the glories of heaven to come to this sinful earth. Rather than call out for drinks and make demands, he served, washing his disciples' feet. He obeyed the will of his Father perfectly. And Jesus suffered pain. Not just a sample of God's judgment, Jesus suffered the full wrath of God himself on the cross as he took our place for our sins. And his death on the cross is the greatest call. Return to God. Return to me, he says. The only way we can prepare to meet our God is by God coming to meet us, which he does in the person of Jesus. We prepare by trusting his death in my place for my sin is enough to take God's judgment for me. You prepare to meet your God by God preparing you. You don't have to fight. You don't have to prepare to try and battle against the God you're certain to lose against. Rather, you participate in the victory that Jesus has won. Because as he dies for our sins, he died. But he rose victorious, conquering sin and death and hell on our behalf. And so we don't have to prepare to fight and lose. Rather, we prepare by participating by faith in the victory Jesus has won for us. Turn to God and be saved. Prepare to meet your God. Every one of us will meet him. Are you prepared? Are you prepared? By trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Well, we're going to respond, first of all, uh, by singing. And then we're going to just have some time uh, to think and pray over what we've heard. Amos, uh, as a prophet, can be uh, heavy in terms of the, the weight uh, we feel of God's judgment. But as New Testament people... The weight of judgments placed on Jesus so we can praise God that we can be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So we're going to stand, first of all, by singing, What Can Wash Away My Sin? And thank God for this wonderful truth. Uh, then we'll be seated and we'll have some time just to think uh, before uh, we spend some time praying. So let's stand and let's respond to God by declaring 
that nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away my sin.
If you please uh, take your seats just for a moment. We're going to have just uh, a time of, of quiet now, just for a moment, uh, for some silent prayer. Uh, just have a think about what we've heard from God's Word tonight. Uh, think about, are you prepared to meet God? Uh, think about, have you got a, a pride in your heart that you need to confess? I'm going to put the points of the sermon just up on the screen. Uh, Hopefully, oh, I'm going to have to go back, sorry. Uh, put the points up on the screen uh, so you've got those to look at just for a couple of minutes and then I'll lead us in prayer. So take some time uh, to reflect and apply what we've heard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we feel the weight of what we've heard tonight. Apart from Christ, we can never be prepared to meet you. And we thank you so much we can sing of the precious blood of Jesus. And we come to you this evening and we confess that we have had proud hearts we have been in rebellion against you and your ways. We have sinned against you in word and thought and in deed. Even the good acts we have done have often just been mere performances with wrong motives. We've sinned unknowingly sometimes, accidentally, often, Lord, deliberately. You know it all. We cannot hide it from you. And so we come asking for forgiveness based on the sacrifice that Jesus has made for our sins on the cross. We thank you for him calling us to return to you through his suffering. And we ask that we would keep returning to you, knowing that you will welcome us. We take time tonight to pray for those who are suffering at this very moment, that in their suffering they would turn to you. We pray for those in our world facing war, in Ukraine and elsewhere, who have lost so much. We do pray for an end to conflict and for relief of suffering. But in the light of this passage, we also pray that people would be forced, as Samson was, to return to you in their distress. We pray for Christians there to point people, like we heard this morning, John the Baptist doing, pointing them to Jesus, who we can be their help. We also pray for those that we know that have not turned to Jesus. We think of our families and our friends 
We shudder to think, Lord, of the consequences of not preparing to meet you, the Lord God Almighty. I pray for any here tonight who have not turned to you, that they would even now turn to Jesus and be saved. And help us, as we heard this morning, to be witnesses to them with our voices and our hands to the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Help us as a church to do this in the months ahead as we have the Jubilee uh, lunch and the Holiday Bible Club and other things. We pray that this church would be a beacon to the light of the world. We pray for those in our church particularly who are suffering with ill health and undergoing treatments for cancer and all sorts of other things. For those who are anxious and worried about the future, we ask again that in their suffering they would turn to you and in doing so receive from you all that they need to undergo the trials that they face each day. And for each one of us tonight, in whatever suffering we may be going through, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, cause us to turn ever more to you Deliver us from the evil of turning away from you. We come to you, O Lord, as the all-knowing, all-wise one, who is sovereign over all and who cares for each of our needs. Help us to trust you day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. If anyone wants to talk about any of the things we've discussed tonight, then feel free to come and, and chat at the end. We'll be here and we'd love to talk more. Uh, about what it means to turn, uh, turn to God. Well, our final song is actually uh, a celebration that God does uh, know all of our ways. Uh, he knows our sufferings. He knows all that we go through. Uh, he is with us in everything, helping us. And so we're going to sing a song of celebration uh, where we sing, Hallelujah, all my ways are known to you. Because in Amos 4, we, we see that, that God is not... Uh, standing aloof from our suffering. He is in our suffering. And so let's stand and celebrate the God who is with us and knows everything that's going on in our lives.
And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. 